Hello and welcome to this Law in Sport podcast. My name is Sean Cottrell. I'm the CEO of Law in Sport. I hope you're doing really well. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you haven't tuned in before, the Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, as well as get to know some of the personalities who work tirelessly behind the scenes to help sport run, advising athletes, clubs, federations, sometimes working in them. Um, but it's a great way for you to get to know some of the people who work behind the scenes to keep sport running from a legal perspective. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, who is Oliver Hunt. He's a commercial lawyer. He's one of the founding partners of the boutique law firm Onside Law, who are a tech, media, sport and fashion um, boutique law firm who were one of the pioneers when it comes to sports law, particularly from a European perspective. I know there was um, some early movers in the US, but from a European and from a, from a British perspective, we'll find more about that out about that later. They were one of the pioneering firms in the field of sports law amongst the other areas that they work in. From Ollie's perspective, he's represented Nick Faldo. He's advised Roy McElroy in uh, 2012 on his Nike deal in the European bidding process for the 2018-2022 Ryder Cup. Interestingly, which I hope we'll find out about during the course of this podcast. He also forms part of Edin Hazard's management team and played a significant role in his move to Real Madrid in 2019. He also helps manage the likes of Matt Fitzpatrick's, uh, Jaden Sancho, Tommy Fleetwood, Red Bull Racing and Leeds United. Um, he's just a great guy. Many of you would have heard him uh, speak on our uh, f- football law conference and he was excellent on that and part of a really interesting panel discussion. And for his sins, I should add, I didn't realise this is a season ticket holder of Southampton uh, FC. And also you're a manager of Arlesford Town under under 11s, which is pretty cool. It's nice to see people still yeah, finding you're a busy guy. How do you find time to do that? I've got no idea. Um, how are you doing? Uh, good, thanks, Sean. Thanks for inviting me on. Um, be good to have a chat. Yeah, I'm all right. Thank you. Um, very well. So, so we've been speaking previously um you don't necessarily have a traditional background when it comes to sort of getting into law you know you are regarded as, a, as one of the top sort of sports lawyers um you're rather understated so i'm quite pleased to, to coax you into this because you know, you know you don't like really there's all the public profile can i ask like how did you first get into law and then how and what your first interactions were with sports law yeah so um my legal career stems all the way back from my school days. And uh, I remember when I was in the sixth form and we were trying to work out, you know, what you were going to be doing. And um, a teacher told my parents that they that they didn't think I would make it as a lawyer um, because I'd expressed some vague interest because um, I think my strengths tended to be, um, you know, the sort of, English history, that kind of thing, um, writing essays. So um, law was one of the, the areas I thought, well, maybe those skills um, suited that. So so the particular teacher, when my parents told him that, um, said, well, I'm not sure that's right for Ollie. And I thought, mm, okay, um, there's a challenge. And uh, <laughs> that sort of made my mind up that I should perhaps try and go into law, almost to prove him wrong. Um, and, and actually, you know, it, it turns out that the law does suit my sort of the way I think. 
um, luckily. Uh, and how would you describe the way you think? The way I think? Um, I think I'm pretty logical and practical. Um, you know, I, I tend to sort of try and find solutions rather than complicate things further. I'm always looking for the sort of logical outcome for something. Um, and really, clarity of thought. That sounds sounds a bit um, cocky, really, but clarity of thought, really. Um, um, in I'm searching for that on a daily basis. <laughs> so, um, so uh, yeah. So then I um, did a law degree as a result. Um, and while I was doing a law degree, um, I have to say I found some aspects of law a bit dry. I've always been interested in sport, um, so I started looking into how law um, interacted with the sports industry and at the time there were very very few people doing it um, and it struck me that the sport was a, an industry the same as any other industry and yet there were no special specialized or spe, um, specialists so um, I basically spotted an opportunity really and I applied to do the IMG work experience the um, intern program which I did um, and really enjoyed. Um, that then led to um, uh, me joining Nabarro's as a trainee. Nabarro's were IMG's go-to law firm at the time. Um, and I kept just pestering everybody that if there's any sports work to do when I was at Nabarro's, I'd like to do it. I was then sent to IMG on um, secondment as a trainee. Um, and then when I qualified, I was sent back to IMG again on secondment. Because um, sort of every time someone left IMG, they'd sort of parachute in until eventually I then joined IMG full time, which was sort of, um, which is fairly inevitable. It became fairly inevitable at the end. Um, and, and even at that time, there were still very few people doing it. So I, I was just lucky, really. I spotted a, an opportunity, an early move, I guess. Well, I, I love that story. The one thing that I think is always, it, how did you even think about finding IMG? Because at the time, obviously a big brand, but I remember you know coming into the space and wasn't didn't have any idea of how influential and significant IMG were as an organisation until I actually started working in the in the sector. If it means briefly, I sort of got that they worked with some key organisations, um, but didn't quite grasp. Um, their influence so from your perspective how did you how did IMG come across your, your... yeah I, I became aware IMG is a business by, by basically looking into the industry to work out you know if look it is is sports or becoming a lawyer in the sports industry is it viable and is there an opportunity I came across IMG that way I then found out that I did that they did an intern program um it was only when I was doing the intern program that I really appreciated how vast an influential IMG was. Um, and I have to say to this day, it's it's really provided the platform for me um, and to a certain degree on side law because Jamie, one of the fellow founders, was with me at IMG. And, um, you know, we left 15, 16 years ago and, and it's still very much, the, at the time, it was very much the university of the sports industry. So passed through IMG. Um, and, and it, Were you there when Stephen Ridgeway was there? Uh, no, I think I might have predated Stephen actually, and I think he was in the TWI uh, sort of part of it. And back, back actually, when I was there, IMG and TWI were two interrelated but fairly distinct businesses. Now, 
it's all completely one business because media plays such a vast sort of influential part in sport. But back in the day, it was, they were slightly distinct. So people need to go back and listen to the podcast with Stephen Ridgeray, who is the general counsel for Being Group, um, as well as Being Sports, I believe. Uh, or I always get, and forgive me, I got it wrong when I did the interview the first time around, and I'm getting it wrong again. But anyway, go and check that out. He's at Being Sports. Um, um, and had you know, a great experience, and again, spoke very highly of his time at IMG and to the learning game. So you become friends with Jamie Singer, uh, at IMG, I presume, <laughs> or maybe, you know, what, what's the, what's the next step in the journey then? So you're at IMG and then. So yeah, I've been at IMG for five or six years. Jamie's been there for four or five years. And, um, we get it. So the second sort of stage and the two of us sort of spotted an opportunity again. Um, we would outsource a lot, not a legal work or not a lot, but we would outsource legal work. Um, and we just felt that the, the advice that we got back um, was expensive, but also um, the people giving that advice were not as knowledgeable about the industry as we were. So um, we were, you know, we were having to kind of then translate that advice to the to the wider commercial team. And so we felt, well, maybe there is an opportunity out in the legal practice in market to offer advice that we give internally to IMG, but offer that sort of advice much wide, more widely. So almost like a quasi sort of in-house legal function um, where you're giving sort of practical solution orientated advice to the commercial team directly. Um, and we just didn't feel that that really existed at that time. So um, yeah, so um, we both went in to see John Lofargan, who was head of legal at the time. And I handed our resignation in at the same time and um, set, started onside law. And next thing I know, I'm sat around Jamie's kitchen table with Simon, our fellow founder, and working out how to how to go from there, really. And, you know, obviously you did a right out of it. But what were some of the, can you, in terms of um, time frames, so people, because I think this is one of the areas that... <sighs> I am concerned about is that we don't track our past particularly well in this sector, right? and particularly with you know everyone's so you know playing the attention game at the moment. Everyone wants to be the sort of the first person to come up with an idea, the first you know and, and lay claim to that all over the place. And I think that there is you know during my journey in, in sports law, I come across so many people who are like, and I classify you and your and and your co-founders in that like pioneers of the space, right? Who are enabled to, like people like you have enabled us to do what we do, right? Because you helped um, the sports industry understand that they were specialists out there, um, you know, and then help, help the sector professionalize. So can you can you give a a timestamp as such of when that was, when, when, when OnSign was established? Yeah, so we started in, I think it was February 2005, um, was when we actually set up short, we'd, we'd left, I'm Gene, Simon left Clifford Chance. And we it was literally it was kitchen table moment. Um was I can't remember the precise date in February, but it was February two thousand five. Wow. I was facing that now. That's so cool. I thought, yeah, that's brilliant. And so what what you know given a you know, what were the I guess the challenges at that time, right? And then where and, you know, maybe you want to describe where you're at now, because now not only do you obviously you talked about 
having this all up, providing this quasi sort of like external in-house, uh, which is now something that we see more commonplace, let's say, in the sector where you have trusted advisors who are kind of almost acting as an in-house counsel. But you guys have been doing that for the ECB as well for, for, for some time. So maybe you can describe that journey about, you know, starting out, you obviously didn't, you had probably had relationships with people, but you didn't necessarily have a client base. So what was that journey like? And then how did that lead you to where, where you guys are now? Yeah, I mean, it was a it was a leap of faith. So um, there were one or two clients that we had sort of lined up, if you like. Um, so Nick Fowler being one of them. Um, so on day one, Nick was a client, um, which helped give us a lot of um, legitimacy within the industry, able to say that he was a client on day one, which, you know. Um, but I remember reading various articles, um, various sort of journals saying, you know, Give these lads six months, you know, ha ha, sort of, you know, good luck. And um, the, the challenge initially was obviously getting the clients on board and spreading spreading the word. So we spent a lot of time going out and meeting people and sort of selling what we were trying to do, really. And that, that was this sort of practical, more efficient legal service to suit the industry. Um, and and that slowly but surely gathered momentum. Um, and that that was largely based on the kind of quasi in-house model, if you like. Um, and as that developed, then we started having to sort of think about the infrastructure of the, of the business as a whole. Um, so initially, we all worked from home, and we had a postal address. Um, and then that moved into you know quite a sort of big decision was then actually moving into an office, the three of us. And we were all always really conservative and. Cautious. So the first office we moved into was an office designed for two people and three of us squeezed in. <laughs> the next office after that was uh, a, a three-man office which was moved into. Really cautious. Um, and just trying to put the building blocks in for the infrastructure was sort of quite challenging because we were totally new to it. And that was whether that was getting PI insurance and getting the right, right accounts done because um, there's still quite a lot of sort of regulatory hoop, um, hoops to jump through as a firm, which we were, you know, pretty naive to, really. So that was quite a big learning uh, curve. And then the, the business sort of started taking on a life of its own. So we started you know, a bit of a snowball effect that the work we did, we were then referred and, and more and more business was generated. So we started taking on more and more people. Um, you know, it was a when Chris Walsh joined us, that was a pretty big moment. He brought with him uh, the A1 Grand Prix at the time, and then he developed the ECB relationship, which which was a big moment. Um, to where we are now, where where we're a bit of a different animal. I mean, we've we've got many more lawyers, and and I think the sort of in-house provision has has been adapted. Really, it's it's not so much now we provide a quasi in-house service. It's more that sort of advice now is. We've become sort of trusted advisors to certain clients um, where they really rely on our experience and our approach. Um, and then alongside that in parallel, we've really developed the business in terms of we now offer genuine sort of specialisms in, in the legal um, world, which we then apply to the law. Um, and whether that's corporate dispute resolution, um, you know, tech, data. And we've really grown that area, which um, is is quite a bit different from where we started. 
when we were first started up, so with Jamie, Simon, and I, and then Chris, we we tended to do everything. Um, Jamie did a big dispute for French Tennis Federation, which was a sort of big moment for us. And Jamie is not a disputes lawyer, but now we've got special sort of teams that do those things. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's and how, how have you found? How have you found? Because I want to come on to the sort of the management stuff that you do. But how have you found that transition as a business owner? You know, and one of the things that I, you know, can be underappreciated, I think, at times when people are coming into any sector. And we've had a whole bunch of people on the podcast over the years who have been talking about this, the challenges of growing a business. It is super tough, right? The difference between having an established practice and brand behind you then to, to, grow, to really invent a brand, launch that brand, go out there, build the trust and build the credibility that people know they can rely on you and the service levels are going to be there as much as they may like you and respect you as a lawyer. You know, they've got to often convince, and this is an individual, they have to convince their colleagues and their other executive that you're, you know, you can be trusted. That is something that is um, particularly challenging. So how did you, how did you deal with that in terms of, and has your approach now changed in terms of, I presume it has over the years, have you learned how to manage people better, where to put your time? Yeah, I think um, inevitably, initially, we were seen as the sort of the young pretenders and these young guys just new to it and um uh and we would get work but we weren't necessarily trusted with the big ticket stuff because that would tend to go to somebody with a you know a longer track record a, a more impressive letterhead um but i think actually over the years we've managed to to change that view um it helps obviously because over time the more work you do the more credibility you get the bigger names you act for and and it's a natural progression. Um, and now I think we, I mean, we do an enormous amount of big ticket work now. We sort of got over that, that um, hump, if you like. Um, and I think that is, it, it, that's down to um, just the experience we've gleaned and people now genuinely see us as sort of, um, you know, I, I'd almost describe myself as a sort of veteran, if you like. Um, <laughs> doing it for a long time um <laughs> and we're no longer the young pretenders we're actually the you know quite old hands at it so i think it's been a natural progression really as the firm has developed um the fact that the founders all remain very hands-on is a big help so um a lot of the clients i had very direct um close relationships to and um what whilst senior associates and other associates might do the work i remain very much involved um to because I know how the client might, and that's that kind of trusted advisor sort of perspective that you're that you're taking, right? Which is interesting. I was speaking to a friend of mine who's um, an amazing personal trainer strength coach, but he specialises in working with lawyers, and he's been researching amongst other things um, about the health and mental health of lawyers. And one of the things he found, he's telling me, he found a paper from I think it's 1924 about how the legal profession needs to remember that they have to be trusted advisors as, as like, that's the best way to, to, to sort of create a happy relationship between you and your client rather than just be this, a commoditized service provider, which, um, you know, you know, can leave people feeling rather unhappy and overworked. Uh, so it's quite interesting that you show that approach. Can I ask then, how did you, so you, you were speaking on our panel on uh, uh, in relation to uh, player contracts, but um, particularly with, with young players and their parents. How did you develop this relationship with them? With uh, with, with um, you know, you represent. So people don't know you, but you represent agencies still 
Um, you represent teams still, but you're also involved in the management of the likes of people like Eden Hazard. How does that? How does that all piece together? And how did that? How did you arrive there? And that's a. I, I've got a lot of respect for you for this because that is a difficult in football in particular. That's a very difficult place to be, where everyone still likes you and you're doing. Yeah, there's those various. Uh, there's various. Yeah, acting for different parties, um, in different capacities. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a challenge. I think it comes down to sort of trust and integrity is is the, the sort of starting point. Um, hopefully, everybody I work with trusts me, and um, you know, integrity for me is is incredibly important. Um, and, and actually, sort of honesty as well, really, um, so that everyone is aware what I do for whom. Um, and actually, I think the work you do for each of these parties, I mean, you, you could never do a, a, a work on a project where there's an actual conflict. Of course, of course, you couldn't do that. But the work you do for each of these different parties helps the work you do for the other because um, you've been, a, you know, you're a poacher turned gamekeeper all the time. Um, I know how the player looks at a transaction. I know how the agent looks at the transaction. I know how a club looks at the transaction. So actually what you can provide is a really balanced view um, and actually hope, hopefully try and help the transaction happen. Um, and I think that goes back to a certain degree to our uh, initial philosophy that lawyers are there to assist with transactions to, to make these things happen whilst protecting the client. At the end of the day, you know, everybody wants to get from A to B and the lawyer is part of that process to help it. And, I think certainly sometimes I've I've experienced where the lawyer almost forgets their role there, um, and they become almost a hurdle for the transaction rather than a part of of, of the smooth transition. And, and actually, having experience working for all sides um, helps that process really. Um, so you're not sort of one-eyed when you whenever you look at everything. And that, so that's such a great point that you've raised because I know speaking to various general counsels and others um, in sport and outside of sports, right? This is always one of the complaints I hear about is you never hear about the good stuff. Obviously, the good stuff has happened seamlessly and you never hear about it. But when people do complain to me, they do complain about the fact that people forget that you're, you know, you're trying to get, particularly on commercial deals, everyone's working to an outcome. Uh, hopefully an agreed outcome and you want to make it happen and the, there's been one side that's had someone representing them and maybe a bit obstinate or fighting every point that's just not really that significant and they you know people get fatigued and annoyed and frustrated and you know i've been in situations you know again trying to do stuff and being on the other side of people who are you know maybe they don't understand the bigger picture and they're just arguing over you know minor details you think yeah, again, maybe they could be reminded of, and uh, um, you know what what the real objective is. And I guess it must be challenging if you're, you know, for for certain people at a particular moment in time, maybe you get target fixated or you get frustrated or you've been told by someone else that that's the bit that you should uh, focus in on. Um, but it seems like very sensible advice to me to always remind yourself that you're trying to get the deal done at the end of the day. Well, there's there's also I think in sport, um, and it's not unique, but it, but it's a very important part of sport is that. Um, particularly in the commercial side of things, you're often dealing on transactions where there is an ongoing relationship. So whether it's a partnership, sponsorship, endorsement, transfer, there are ongoing relationships. And if you end up having one contract where someone has absolutely 
stitch the other side up because it is so one-sided, then I've certainly learned that those relationships tend to sour um, pretty quickly. And actually, a, a more balanced contract is often the best contract because everybody feels they're happy. Um, and of course, you have to, you know, there are certain things you really have to zone in on um, to make sure are right. But um, I think one party absolutely bullying the other into a one-sided contract doesn't actually always lead to a, a healthy long-term relationship. Absolutely. I, and I agree. Like in the sports sector, is such a small world. In law, it's such a small world. In fact, um, you know, you do come across these people time and time again. And really what you're talking about is making sure both sides are getting value from that transaction, right? And they feel valued. In terms of then the management stuff you do, how did that come about? And so say with Ed and um, Hazard, how did that all, all happen? So I think it was... um. Partly as a natural transition of, um, I was doing quite a lot of talent-related work. Um, and the way on-site law operates is that we try and sort of get close to the client, really understand the client. Um, and so with Eden, I was actually introduced to Eden by Chelsea. Um, so he, he joined the club. Um, part of his deal was an image rights deal. Um, but he had effectively fallen out with his agent during the transaction. Um, he didn't want another agent because of what had happened. Um, and he needed to finalise all the paperwork. So I was introduced to him by Chelsea. Um, and so as a result, I started doing some work for him and his team. Um, and his team is basically the um, his sort of financial advisors who are based in France. Um, so we didn't really have anyone on the ground in the UK. Um, so I started working really closely with those guys. Um, and then when we did his Chelsea renewal, I was sort of very involved in that, partly because um, I was on the ground in the UK and um, his dad was involved. His dad's based in Belgium and, and Marie and Vincent were based in France. Um, and we ended up just forming this quite sort of every negotiation and everything we would do as a sort of team really um in the in the absence of him having an agent um when he moved to madrid we we did it as a team um we all attended the meetings and we all sort of um both with chelsea and madrid um yeah so so he didn't want an agent and we effectively as a team formed that role um and, and again it comes down you know, lucky, right place, right time by being recommended by Chelsea and developing the relationship. Um, you know, and and it's a tr the trust thing. Do you think that that's indicative of a, of a of a changing in the approach to particularly the more sophisticated players? Obviously, we've seen other players, you know, particularly in their renegotiations of contracts, right? Say, you know what, maybe I don't need an agent. Maybe they do. Um, many do obviously um, but maybe I just need a lawyer a good accountant you know tax advisor maybe I need the, you know, the team of people rather than just one person orchestrate those relationships I'm capable enough to have those relationships myself um, I understand where the value is uh, and what you know I can weigh out my own advice um, do you think that is, is is going to be something we're going to see more of yeah I do actually I mean I I remember 15 20 years ago approaching the FA about it, um, saying that, you know, I believe that, that lawyers could play a greater role in the football world. Um, 
Now, I, I, I think there is a role for agents without doubt. Um, but certain transactions, I don't necessarily think and a, a lawyer and an accountant can perform that role. That's when there's a straight negotiation and you know, as long as the people you engage have the right experience and know broadly the commercial, the commercial wishes of the player, but also the, the, the actual realistic commercial landscape. Um, I do think that will happen more and more. I think that will also happen a little bit because um, more and more family members are getting involved in the management of players um, and effectively perform the role of an agent. Um, and and therefore, that family member will bring in a lawyer and an accountant. There's very much a tight member of that team. Um, and, and as we did with Eden, that you form a sort of a management team, if you like. Um, and, and often there's still a role for an agent within that structure, actually. Um, but yeah, I, I can see more. Yeah. And it's interesting because as you're, as you're talking about it, I'm thinking, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And at the same time, you can see that some of the same issues that we've had with agents occurring in the professional services market where maybe people are, because you know, one of the challenges of football is everyone wants to be involved. You know, there's so many fans out there that there could be people basically overstating their you know, experience, which you've highlighted as being quite important and understanding of, you know, the real and true commercial values. And therefore you you could, in theory, if you don't get the right type of provider, like if you don't get the right type of agent, you just re-replicate the same problem you got with some of the agents who aren't necessarily performed to their, you know, the highest standards, just in professional services. I guess the risk is slightly lower. I think, I think as a lawyer trying to pretend to do a football transaction, you'd get found out pretty quickly, actually. Um, you know, I, I really, you know, to really like seeing certain lawyers that we deal with on the other side because you know, there's, you know, they, they know what the deal is and they know the documents, they know what is a sensible thing to expect and what isn't. Um, so absolutely, but I think you'd get found out pretty quickly. The agency world, I think, will become more regulated again. Um, I, I personally think it needs to be, um, but not as regulated as it was previously. Um, the trouble is the agency world was so highly regulated, it was impossible to police. Um, but then it went completely the other way when they almost withdrew all regulations. Um, and the trouble with that, I mean, I've seen so many people who've approached me or the firm wanting to become a football agent, um, literally from, from a standing start. Um, without any real knowledge at all. Um, and we end up sort of holding a lot of hands on that basis. And, you know, I, I think some regulation is good, but just not as much as they had previously. Yeah, it's funny you say that, actually. I've come across over the years lots of aspiring agents. Uh, many just don't laugh because it's a difficult... I think people understate how difficult it is a function to perform. It really is time-intensive. And um, also a bunch of former players who want to become agents. And again, you know, obviously in a deregulated market, it's been difficult for them to operate in. I think in a regulated market, it actually serves those players or those people uh, better because the the, 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 the environment's a much more transparent environment. Do you think there's, there's a room for, one of the things I always, I always struggled to get my head around was why there is no 
real sanctioning body or group for sports agents as a whole globally because it seemed to me one of the projects I had in mind was bringing together say for example like athletics rugby golf like bringing together all these sports and actually you know particularly getting the governing bodies to agree uh, you know a generic type of regulation for agents right rather than you know as a, as a sort of a minimum standard and then have your sports specific add-ons let's say do you think that's something that we might see in the future um, I'm not sure you will see. I, no, I'm not sure you'll see that. I think the sports are so <laughs> varied. There are so many different demands. It's so global now. I mean, it's hard enough to try and implement a uniform set of regulations for one sport, football, given how global it is. Um, you know, it's it's tricky doing transactions cross border because you're dealing with different cultures, different regulations, different legal processes um so then to try and expand that more broadly i i think would be very difficult so i i take up your challenge a bit like when you said <laughs> said you should be a lawyer i'm not gonna set up a <laughs> 10 years time you'll say i'll <laughs> No, I think you're right. I think it is difficult, but I do wonder if there's like a, you know, at least an agreed best practice in terms of licensing or something like that, um, as a minimum, wherever the parties that is this fundamental. Because it must be difficult. Because imagine you've got you're, you're an agent and you've actually got you know, you've got your network of uh, uh, you know in your team around you who you know you can go to tax advisors, lawyers, accountants, etc. And then you could. You know, you essentially, and this is one of the arguments in football, wasn't it, with the with the way the regulatory system was was not working, was that, or and, and again, when it was overregulated before, it was really difficult to advise people, even though you might be well placed to advise people, and the regulations make it difficult. So having some sort of standard form in terms of everyone understands the protocol, and from an athlete's perspective, wouldn't it be great if everyone kind of agreed that this is the, you know, when someone's representing me, this is what they you know i can expect from them which currently is uh lacking i think the difference is is that football the agents are in control of the player's career because they deal with the club to club transactions and the employment agreement other sort of big sports you know whether it's golf tennis the agent isn't so involved in the in the career aspect because they're effectively self-employed they play on a tour they play in tournaments and the agent has a lot less influence on that the agent is more a commercial agent um so they don't play quite such a sort of primary role um whereas the football agent you know can determine on a very young age really the pathway for that player um and so much trust is placed in the agent in the football world that they can be very influential and and other sports you know, i do a lot in golf and a lot, a lot of sports there's a huge amount of trust between agent and golfer but I think the agent has less influence on on the player's career directly. Um, that's the on course stuff. When you when you phrase it like that, you just think, given you know the issues that we talked about, you know, at the conference and, and you know the reports that come out with Arsene Wenger and his team on academies and stuff like that, that just um, fundamentally doesn't seem to be right, given that we're in the age of data, right? The, the, given how much data there is about all these players from a young age around the world. That still one party outside of a club, outside of a federation, can still have quite a you know significant role to play in the development of talent 
because in theory you'd like to think it'd be you know and maybe that's just indicative of the the you know the competitive nature and the the, num- the vast number of people who participate in the in sport it's sorry within football that they just a natural consequence of that is that it's not a very efficient system right so you have to have these agents who have so much influence but intuitively it seems that that seems to be problematic that you'd have a, like you could have a, a great young player male or female not get through just for the want of a, the right agent feels more like the fashion industry rather than the sports industry yeah i mean they you know there are good agents there are bad agents i have to say the good agents are brilliant and um you know um there's absolutely a place for a good agent um yeah and you you just hope that the player gets the right agent and somebody's watching their back um i mean i'm i'm a firm believer in um and this is doesn't always go down well in the football agent world but i'm a firm believer in any player regardless of their relationship with an agent should have a me or a lawyer watching their back and just making sure that they are being looked after properly and that's not to interfere um but it's just to make sure the rep agreement is fair and to make sure that you know that they have someone truly independent watching their back really but you know that's quite a tough sell in the football agency world because um they think was sort of on their turf. So I would say that I think again that on that point, and speaking to some people in quite sort of big clubs, again I think that's changing. Probably the smarter agents are embracing that as as what's going to be the because you can't. That's essentially is you know one of the problems that we're trying to solve with law and sport. Obviously, is that people can access the right people, and they know what they're entitled to. That kind of once that cat is truly out of the bag. Then and obviously the, the work that the player unions are doing, etc., which is again is coming. So you might as well just, you know, from their point, just do, I would imagine it'd be better to embrace that early rather than being told you have to do it. Um, in terms of the point you raised about having a good agent, is you know is is fantastic if you have a good agent. What is it you'd characterise as a good agent, both in terms of what they can provide professionally and as, as an individual? What are the if you were to you know. Maybe someone's listening to this and they're either, you know, an aspiring agent or lawyer and they're working with it. What is the the sort of are there any tales in which you can say this is a this is someone who you could trust and you know is going to do a good job? Well, it sounds um sounds obvious, but it, it's the person who's looking out for you as the player for your best interest. So um making the move in your career to suit you as a player rather than necessarily making a move. Or suggesting you move because there's money involved. Um, understanding actually where you are in your career and what what the priority is. So um, if you go to this club, and this is even you know low down at sort of academy level, are, are you actually going to get any playing time, um, or are you just being paid more money than the other club and therefore are being sort of suggesting you go there? Because at the end of the day, uh, and so, again, same in golf really. If you get your head down and perform on the pitch, then things come to you. Um, and just so making sure the agent is looking after you and your long-term career, really, as opposed to any sort of short-term gainism, I'd say. And, and that all comes down to trust. And I guess that must be hard to and that must be hard to identify because you could be told, um, you know, you're going to get an opportunity to play. You will, yeah, they can say all the things, right? Um, and and but knowing deep down that they're not. 
right? Like if, if it was someone who's just motivated by money. Um, but that's a really interesting point. You know, again, as you were saying, if you're performing well, you can make things happen, but you have to be on the pitch in the first place to be able to perform well. Um, in terms of other things outside of your immediate work, what are the things that you sort of focus in on in terms of like, um, you know, are there any, yeah, outside of your direct stuff, what are the sort of trends that you're seeing that you are sort of interested in you, either as a firm or you as individually, that you're sort of monitoring? I'll tell you that the one thing that crops up all the time at the moment, um, and I'm not an expert in this, um, are NFTs. And everyone I speak to wants to know about NFTs. And, it, and it's quite a unique, not a unique position, but um, everybody is in the same boat because it is so new. No one, I don't think, really can genuinely hold their hand up and say, I've got a track record. I've been doing this for five years. This is how you do it. So everybody, whether it's the client, the lawyer, you're all sort of learning on the job. Um, and it will be really interesting to see how that area develops because it's spanning at the moment in sport, spanning every aspect of it, whether you're an individual, whether you're a team, whether you're a federation. Um, because everybody's been told you've got to get into NFTs, you've got to make money, there's money to be made. And I don't think many people have quite grasped how to do that. Uh, I've spoken now to, on behalf of various clients, I've sort of been involved in calls with NFT agencies, which have suddenly cropped up. Um, and actually, it's, it's been really interesting because um, I, I'm on the call, if you like, just to, just to check the legitimacy of these people and um, provide my kind of my view to the client afterwards. And I'm much more impressed by those people who, who admit and fess up to the fact that this is a growing area. It's totally new. We're sort of working through it as we go. We don't know all the answers. And someone who, you know, claims, yeah, we've got all that covered because I genuinely don't think they have. And, and immediately you sort of think, well, okay, well, actually, I don't believe you because he didn't really answer this question. Um, so it will be really interesting to see how that market goes, actually. And that's legal sense because, um, you know, will there be people who develop a real genuine speciality in the area? But, but commercially, will it really take off? Um, well, we had a panel on it, actually, at the conference. And it's so interesting because there are people who have been in the sort of blockchain area for some time and there's people you know there are people who are working but again the, the, the uh, like you know the people we had on that on that panel they're very honest about their perspective and their understanding and what, what the known unknowns are you know how has this been treated as, as a security or not what's the issues in different markets you know what are the ip issues and it's just fascinating and again they, those people um, are just so impressive because of the fact they can actually articulate truly what they're thinking and what their concerns are rather than just go, you should just do it with, you know, uh, and being so, as I call it, like a certainty addict, right? That this is the future and we should do it. And funny enough, as you were talking, it's kind of the same thing that we alarm bells start to go for us with, with, with sports lawyers, right? <laughs> uh, the, the people that I've always found so impressive over the years, some of the world's leading judges, lawyers, Etc. The people who go, oh, that's an interesting point. I don't have all the information. Let me have, let me look into it. And sometimes they're the best placed to give an opinion, but they reserve it because they think they feel like they could always know more, uh, rather than the people probably more like myself <laughs> who form an opinion without knowing anything too quickly, then have to backtrack. Um, no, that's so interesting. 
Um, the, other, the other interesting sort of development, if you like, which um, I actually think is just starting and will be here for the next five, 10 years is there's so much money in sport now and there are going to be more and more challenges to the established order, if you like. And um, we've seen that with the European Super League. That has not gone away, in my view. That, that will crop up again in some guise. And I think that's just the start of it. We're seeing in, in golf, there is, um, you know, there's the Saudis and there's also the PGL trying to, you know, and they are challenging the established order of the, of the PGA Tour and the European Tour. And I think every sport will see more and more of that as more and more new money comes in. Um, whether it's from private equity or, or otherwise, challenging the established order um, and creating new assets and new tournaments and new events. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that pans out as well. Really. I think it's a great point and it's definitely the, the thing that's been cropping up, whether it's, you know, Adam Lewis has talked about a number of occasions now, um, you know, the competition law aspect as well that comes into play there is it's going to be it seems to be going to be a growing area for for sport to be able to uh, address for what well, the correct balances between being a regulator competition organizer um you know the overlaid with all the human rights stuff yeah uh, a great point so for your for your sort of areas of ollie's we could call it we could have a corner can we ollie's corner of, of fascination or something we could a bit like trying to think what we call it but areas areas to focus in on nfts what's going to happen there agreed it's, it's so interesting and then you know the, the the injection of new money and um you know challenging the established order two great areas and then finally when you're looking for you know, you guys speak to a lot of aspiring sports. I always think it's a good thing to ask. What is it you look for in a colleague? I think someone who's um, sort of practical and solution driven in terms of their legal sort of how they how they look at things from a legal perspective. Um, you know, looking for solutions. Um, it, it's someone who. Um, can deal with stress actually it's quite a it's quite a stressful job i think um being a lawyer full stop is quite stressful and you read a lot about that um and that will probably always remain so um a lawyer in sport is fascinating because you tend to be doing working on stuff that you're interested in um but by the same token there's a lot of quick turnaround time and a lot of it is quite high profile so which adds another element of stress so I think calmness, a sort of practical mind, really. Um, but then someone who will forge relationships with the client because it, it is all based on relationship, trust, um, you know, because really being a good lawyer is a gimme. You should be a good lawyer. Um, and therefore, it's then building those relationships with the client and building that trust. And, um, yeah, we, we spoke about this privately and... I think it'd be interesting to, 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 to you know, revisit it, which is how do you, right, as you're pioneers of, the, of your firm, right, you're founders of your firm, you, you, you know, a bit like me as the founder of Law in Sport, right, your motivation is can be slightly different uh, to colleagues who join at later when you're more established. How do you articulate and encourage then people, whether it's in your firm or externally, how do you say to people, right, you need to balance this, right? You need to be calm, collected, composed. Right? And you can tell why well, I never qualified as a lawyer, <laughs> right? So um, you need to be calm, collected, and composed. You need to be practically uh, 
you know, focused, right, and solution driven. So you always need to go, right, this is great. We've got all the law here, but let's let's focus on what the bits that really matter. Let's get rid of the, the noise, focus on the things that matter. This is what the client needs, right? So you, that so you're already in that realm with a good law as well, looking at some higher performance. Then based in an environment, whether you're in a sports or firm or not, it's really high pressured. You typically got a lot of work to do. How do you then balance or find the time or allocate or prioritize the time to build those relationships because to build the relationships you're talking about uh, take a long time they're not just something typically you just go for one drink or send one email and suddenly your best mate and you know isn't the world a lovely place let's do some work together right to build up trust from not knowing someone is is something that you know does take a lot of energy so what advice would you give um I'm not sure there's an answer to that, Sean. Um, The world's longest question, the world's shortest answer. (laughs) I I, I don't think there's a magic wand um, in that respect. I mean, it is a challenge. It's a a challenge for us as the um, management team within Onside Law because we we all sort of wear a number of hats, and whether that's um, running the business, trying to win work, and then doing the work. So we effectively have three three hats at all times and and the, the guys within the firm you know we try and involve them to a degree in, in running the firm and buying and everything um but they also are, are expected to win work do the work and build the client relationships and it, and it is really hard and when everyone's really busy um it's tough to do that i mean i, I just think it is one it, it comes over time you you do a good piece of work you um the trust just builds and the relationship builds and it's not an overnight fix. Um, but as long as you sort of the principles are there, you 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 do good work and you are personable and you, you get on well with the client and understand the client and what they like and what they need. And I think it's just something that comes comes over time. So that's that's a lovely point. So I love that because I was looking at it from a more again what can you do to take action? And and your point is, look, it will just naturally happen if you're interested in this area, if you are working and providing and working with clients. And this is certainly, there's various people we know who have done exceedingly well, never really done any, I would say, let's say focused networking or relationship building as such. They're just being doing a great job. Um, some of your colleagues, for example, um, uh, uh, you know, um, demonstrate that some of the some of the team have like, you've been mentioned by various people and stuff like that in sports organisations for their their contribution like, unprompted, and so that that is evidenced by that. And then at the same time, though, accepting that if you do want to do like what's going to be a long term objective as such, uh, but also it is just hard. It is there's no easy way to do it because I think one of the problems in the sector can be at times people look at the likes of you. Um, the firm as a whole and think oh so it was great for you guys you've established it's easy and it's and it's not <laughs> right to, to 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 do what you do is a is um you know and to, to have an established practice sustainable practice and grow a team and maintain relationships is just a challenge and i think it's reassuring to hear from someone like yourself you don't go oh it's easy no, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, you know it's, it's it's quite hard graft in that um i'm not saying it's painful to build those relationships but you know um the sports industry is not nine to five, Monday to Friday. Actually, an enormous amount of work in the sports industry goes on Saturday, Sunday. Um, so it's being being available, and it sounds really cheesy, this, but it's being available to your clients before seven. You know, we have a lot of calls, a lot of urgent stuff 
has to be done at the weekend. Um, and I think it's being available and turning the work round when they need it, even if it's really antisocial. And that builds the trust and then that builds the relationship. And then you can have like you you can manage things a bit better from from that perspective. But it's interesting. We've had other people on the podcast recently, and I think and thank you for being so honest about this because again, we had um, Joseph Vandalos on, and he was basically saying, you know, talking about his practice. And I was like, do you turn down work? And he was like, well, if ethically I don't agree with it, or there's you know um, uh, a conflict, then I'll obviously I'll turn it down. But typically, no, I try and take every piece of work I can get because it's a competitive market. And I thought it was great to have that level of honesty because you know one of the things that we're trying to do so so much within uh, Lawrence more generally is trying to give some transparency to the market because pe- people uh, can paint a really perfect picture on social media and it does not reflect the reality right and the majority hence why i said at the beginning we get to know the people behind who are working tirelessly behind because it truly is tirelessly people are working really hard behind the scenes all the time and people like yourselves aren't necessarily going to be putting up you know selfies on 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 linkedin and stuff like that <laughs> <laughs> but right, that's not really your bag. But um, you know, because that can create a really unrealistic expectation for people coming into the market. Also, in terms of we see that, also in terms of people evaluate, you know, their their contribution to the sector as well, because they weigh up against that. I think, wow, I'm working this hard, and other people just seem to be going to matches and having a great time, uh, which is part of it, no doubt. Um, Ollie, look, I'm delighted to get you onto the um, onto the podcast because, as I said, I know you're not someone who, you know craves or wants necessarily attention and so i feel like i've achieved something getting you on uh so i feel like that was mission accomplished um but no i said it and i say it to to to, to you know so many people who are what i consider to be like founders of of the of the sect of the sector um and obviously there were people before you like john and others lofhagen and you know obviously the img guys and others but thank you for 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 doing that because i said you know law and sport is only you know as they say we stand on the struggle of giants People seem to think sometimes. I think that we think that we're the only. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm just maybe I'm just imposing my insecurities on other people. But yeah, you know, sometimes you know maybe it can be easy that because we're not saying it all the time that people think we're the only people who sort of came into the sector and start covering issues in the sector. Not understanding that there were publications before us, like the World Sports Report and others. Um, and various journals that were going on. Likewise, there were law firms like yourselves who were pioneers in showing the sports sector that actually. You know, if you can get good lawyers who understand the sector and got specific knowledge, that is really valuable, and that allows us to do what we do. So, thank you for that. Um, delighted you guys are corporate members as well of Law and Sport, of course. So, um, and thank you for sharing your knowledge and wisdom um, on the podcast. Pleasure, Sean. It's been a nice to have a chat, and um, I, I think Law and Sport is a, a great um, addition to the industry as well. I think you uh, you do a great job and form a great role within the industry, so you're a great addition as well. So. Thanks for chatting. Oh, thank you. Oh, isn't that nice? <laughs> we can group, group hug. <laughs> no, uh, thank you very much. That's really kind. And uh, yeah, we try our best anyway. But um, yeah, if you've enjoyed the podcast, as we say to people, always, if you know, law and sport, we don't take money. No one pays to write for us, pays to speak for us, pays to speak at our conferences. We don't take any sponsored content whatsoever. Therefore, if you love what we do, please do tell people about it. It's the word of mouth. If you've got value from this, if you've taken, you know, the one thing I would say, I do get feedback from guests on the podcast, but if you've listened to this, something that Ollie said has resonated with you, please reach out to him and tell him. It's such a lovely thing to do. People do really appreciate it. And of course, 
again, if you found out something that's useful, please do tell people about it and tell people the source as well. Um, it does matter to us. And other than that, of course, for all the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, go to lawinsport.com, follow us on SoundCloud, Twitter, iTunes, Spotify, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you want, really, and also sign up to our weekly email. Um, and other than that, thank you for your support. And wherever time of day it is, wherever you are in the world, thanks so much. Have a lovely rest of your day.